It's the early 90s, and Lee Israel is a down-on-her-luck writer. She's doing some research for a biography that she's writing. At Lincoln Center, there's a library where you can read old documents. So these aren't things that are in books. These are original documents. Lee's researching a woman named Fanny Bryce, a popular American comedian, singer, and actress who skyrocketed to fame in the 20s. So Lee's in the library at the Lincoln Center, reading and making notes when she notices something. While going through some of the papers, she discovered a couple of them that weren't cataloged correctly. She finds original letters written by Fanny Bryce. Lee pours over the letters, and for a literary lover like her, this is an exciting discovery. And the library hadn't even logged them properly. That's when Lee has a thought. Oh my God, I could sell these. This is an appealing thought for her because of her situation. You see, Lee is on welfare. She's behind on her rent, and her cat is sick. She's in desperate need of money, and these letters have literally been handed to her. No one would even notice the letters are missing. Lee picks them up, folds them, and glances around to make sure no one's watching. She reaches down slowly and slides them into her shoes. So she swipes them. She walks out of the library, praying that she doesn't get caught. She slips past the staff and gets the letters home, where she realizes that she can do more than just sell them. She ends up masterminding a simple but subtle plan that could turn her life around. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the show where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, we're looking at the true story behind the Hollywood film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? and the woman who inspired it all. Once upon a time as a kid, I got a bad report card from school. And it had to be signed by my mother. But I didn't want to show the bad grades to my mom because I would have gotten in trouble. So I tried to forge her signature, but it didn't work. You know why? Because I was nervous as hell. I started, stopped, started, stopped. And for anyone who knows anything about forgery, you know once you start the signature, you cannot stop. I took the report card back to my teacher, and she immediately knew that my mom didn't sign it that I forged it. The teacher then told me, well, I'm going to call your mother tonight and let her know. So when I get home from school, I tell my mom what I did and I got in trouble. And to this day, Mrs. Smith, my sixth grade teacher, has yet to call my mom. So I confess to the crime for no reason. So clearly I wasn't good at it and I couldn't pull it off. But if I had managed it, who knows? I might have done it a couple more times. Today's story is about a writer who was strapped for cash, took a small step into forgery, and how it ended up snowballing into something massive. Her scan was so good that it was praised by the FBI agent chasing her, as well as the victims of her con. And it inspired a major Hollywood movie. To make sense of how she managed to get away with it, we hear from a man who identifies forgeries for a living and explains exactly how to make a good fake. 
It's 2008. A screenwriter, Jeffrey Witte, hears the phone ring. I got a call through my agent. It's a potential job. And then this memoir comes through, and I was like, oh my God, this is great. Jeffrey is being asked to adapt this memoir into a screenplay. The memoir was written by a woman named Lee Israel, and immediately, Jeffrey loves her. On page three, I recognized Lee Israel's voice in a lot of my friends, my crabby artist friends in New York. People with, with very, very strong views of the world and a sort of a grim sense of humor about how things are going, how New York is becoming pedestrian. I've worked in academia, comedy, and journalism. So I know a few of those people myself. Jeffrey is completely fascinated with the character of Lee. He can't get through the book fast enough. Lee would describe herself even as a, you know, a lesbian cat lady who lived on the Upper West Side. She's in her early 50s with short, dark hair, and her style is fairly plain. Lee was not a beauty. She didn't care to present herself as perhaps some of her colleagues would. Lee Israel is a writer, and she's been freelancing since she graduated from college. She's been on all sorts of beats, writing articles about theater, film, and television. She's appeared in the New York Times, Soap Opera Digest, Esquire, and other magazines. So she's got a little cred. And eventually, Lee finds her niche. She was known for uh, writing these, you know, excellent biographies. Dorothy Kilgallen was, was, a, was a big one for her. Dorothy was a big-shot American journalist. She used to be friends with Frank Sinatra until she wrote an article about him. Then the two had beef. She covered major murder trials and JFK's assassination. And a lot of people think her reporting might have even played a part in her death. When Lee's biography on Dorothy is published in 1979, it appears on the New York Times bestseller list, and people love it. It even gets optioned to possibly become a movie. High on the success of her last book, Lee begins work on the biography of an even higher-profile celebrity, Estee Lauder. It's an unofficial portrait chronicling her rise to cosmetic royalty status. According to Lee, Estee Lauder isn't too pleased when they find out about her biography. So they offer her money to drop the project. But Lee refuses. So Estee Lauder writes her own memoir and schedules it to drop at the same time as Lee's. Now, you got a memoir from Estee Lauder versus a secondhand biography of Estee Lauder. People didn't even bother buying Lee's version. The book really did tank. Like, badly. Lee probably thought everything she touched after the Dorothy Kilgallen book would be gold. After her latest book flops, no one in the industry wants to work with her. But we can't pin that entirely on the failure of her book. It's kind of Lee's fault as well. She's not the easiest person to work with. Lee did not take crap from anybody. And so she had sort of a reputation of being kind of like a snapping turtle a little bit. She's abrasive and kind of rude. So no one wants to work with her. Now she's struggling to make ends meet, but refuses to take a nine to five because she thinks office workers are wage slaves. Her feistiness is only made worse by her drinking, which she does a lot. You know, in downtown New York, there's a bar called Julius, and Lee would sit at the bar with her headphones on, listening to music, but also shutting everyone else out. When she's not working, she's often at the bar. And most of the time, 
she's drinking alone. A lot of the trouble she would get in came from having a few too many drinks, perhaps at the wrong time of day. It makes Lee kind of a nuisance. You see, people in the publishing industry aren't taking her calls anymore. So Lee starts ringing them, pretending to be Nora Ephron instead. And when they rush to the phone to answer, Lee yells, Star fucker! And then hangs up. She does this until she receives a letter from Nora Ephron's lawyer asking her to cease and desist. Lee ends up on welfare, but it's not enough to pay her rent, which she's behind on. And she's got a cat to feed. And her love above all were her cat, Jersey. Lee adores her cat, Jersey, which seems to be her only friend. She was a recluse in a lot of ways. She's this gigantic heart all covered in prickles. And she is self-sabotaging a lot in her personal relationships. She was, I think, a very lonely person, but also not someone that was longing to get into any kind of, of social world. Having sabotaged her relationship with her agent and others in the publishing industry, Lee is left with nothing. This led her to a crisis, a financial crisis, and also in a way spiritual one. And then the worst thing imaginable for Lee happens. Jersey, the love of her life, falls ill and needs to be taken to the vet. She had to take care of Jersey and pay his medical bills. All she needs is $40 for the test, but she doesn't have enough. Lee tries selling some secondhand books at a bookstore across town, but the bookseller doesn't want them. And she's left feeling desperate as she carries this mound of books back to her apartment, which is falling into disrepair like the rest of her life. Lee starts to tidy up, but when she goes to clean under the bed, she finds something disgusting. Jersey had been using the, you know, underside of the furniture as his litter box. And it's pretty gross, but it also sort of gives this really great sense of what she had come to. Motivated by the cost of Jersey's test, Lee decides to write another book, one that she thinks will reestablish her as a writer to watch. She wanted to write a biography of Fanny Bryce. Fanny Bryce starred in a comedy series on the radio, and she was posthumously awarded two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So Lee heads off to research Fanny at the library, and that's where we started this episode, with Lee finding Fanny's letters and stealing them. The letters, they aren't particularly juicy, and they don't reveal anything scandalous, but they take Lee from being an ordinary writer to being wanted by the FBI. Lee went from straight stealing the letters to forging them herself. That's coming up after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. 
the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. So Lee left the library with a shoe full of old letters written by Fanny Bryce. She gets home to her tiny apartment and starts to read the letters. There's this entire underground world of memorabilia sales. Fans and collectors who want autographs from celebrities or letters from beloved authors. Or dealers who buy low and then bump up the price when they sell them to real fans. She sells one of them. And she doesn't get the amount she's expecting for an original Fanny Bryce letter. But the seller says, you know, I I pay more for better material. Lee still has a Fanny Bryce letter left. But again, it's pretty bland. If she wants a bit more money, then she needs something a little more interesting. A revelation. Anything. Then it dawns on her. She could add a line to the letter herself. I mean, she is a writer after all. The letter is typed. So Lee gets her own typewriter and feeds the Fanny Bryce letter into it. Under Fanny Bryce's sign-off, she adds her own line. Lee added a crack from Fanny Bryce about her nose. A joke about the size of Fanny Bryce's own nose. Turns out, this final flourish actually did the trick. This letter got a much better response. And this is where I think a light bulb went off in Lee's head that this could possibly become a career. She hasn't been able to get a job. No one wants to work with her. But this forgery stuff comes so easily to her. She's good at it, and the people love these letters so much that she's making regular cash. She began forging letters from all kinds of people. Dorothy Parker and Noel Coward uh, were, I think, perhaps her two proudest forgeries. Dorothy Parker was a satirist and poet. And Noel Coward was an English playwright and actor. But she also forges letters from Hemingway and other people. And because most of these people type their letters, it's pretty easy for Lee to type up her own. The only thing she has to do by hand sometimes is sign the letter. One signature in particular is hard for Lee to nail freehand. She tries over and over, but it's never quite right. So she comes up with a solution. She made a sort of light box out of her upended television with which she could, you know, forge the signatures. She traces the signature instead. It became her new art form. So she was able to use her skills in a way she never really had before. And people appreciate her writing perhaps more than they ever did. Lee adds just enough sass and gossip in each letter so as not to attract too much attention, but enough to make buyers laugh and covet these unique, intimate items. Pretending to be Dorothy Parker, Lee writes, I have a hangover that is a real museum piece. I'm sure then that I must have said something terrible. To save me this kind of exertion in the future, I am thinking of having little letters run off saying, Can you ever forgive me, Dorothy? As Noel Coward, Lee writes about Julie Andrews, 
who is quite attractive since she dealt with her monstrous English overbite and compliments another man's beautiful ass, while Hemingway complains about the casting of the old man and the sea. The more chatty, the more forthcoming they are, the more money she could get for them from these memorabilia dealers. As Lee branches out to forge other people, and as her operation expands, she has to refine the process. She started with one typewriter, but then every writer needed their own typewriter, so she eventually had a collection of them. She buys old secondhand typewriters and keeps them in a rented storage locker, then labels each one with a little tag inscribed with the name of the person it would be used to impersonate. Lee studies letters that these people have actually written and realizes she needs paper that looks authentic as well. She can't just use some fresh white sheets from the store. She got some of it from, you know, blank pages that would be included at the Lincoln Center Library, but she would also go so far as to toast it in the oven (laughs) to make a Dorothy Parker letterhead at the stationery store. Curtis Dowling spends his life authenticating art and antiques. So he knows how to forge a good letter and how to spot a forgery. So with documentation, you've got a tricky job on your hands. When we're talking about letters, we have to decide what period they're coming from to be able to determine how we're going to authenticate them. If we're coming up to date and we're talking about Noel Coward and we're talking about the the glorious timers of the 20s and 30s and 40s, which is probably the letter-writing period, then all of a sudden you've got a more difficult job on your hands. This makes things less complicated for a forger. First of all, go into a bookshop, open an old book that was printed in the 30s and 40s, and tear out the blank pages that are at the back and the front. All of a sudden, you've got 70 or 80-year-old paper. Which is what Lee does. And if you want to buy old ink, There are places where you can go for that, too. You've got original paper and you've got original ink. So you've got the basic ingredients, but you need to look at the finer details of a letter. The one thing that all of us who look at documentation look for to start with is the grammar. So basically, if you were trying to forge a medieval letter, you need to throw in a few thou hithers, thouest, cometh, goest, thouest, hitherest, thou hitherto's. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) There's certain things that you might think are trendy and new that aren't, that might throw the casual observer trying to authenticate. For example, LOL. The very first person to use LOL in a letter was Winston Churchill. So we think it's cool and trendy because we text it. It isn't cool and trendy. It's from the 1930s. If Churchill had used LMAO, I think I'd have been more impressed. An authenticator will look out for the use of words that enter the English language after the letter was supposedly written. Once we've looked at the grammar, we look at the handwriting. Or in Lee's case, they look at the typewriters and the typeface. A couple of times we've been able to catch someone out because the typewriter is slightly newer than the letter that is purporting to be old. Nowadays, we can just switch up the font. But back then... You needed a completely different typewriter to get the typeface just right. After that, Curtis looks at who wrote the letter and their writing style. Certain people were very giving when they wrote letters. If you look at a letter from Elizabeth Taylor, whether it was to Richard Burton or a friend, she gushes. Whereas other people, 
keep it short and sweet. Steve McQueen really was more like a text. You know, he gave nothing away. Dear John, see you Wednesday. All my best, Steve. To prove his point, Curtis has forged a lot of paintings and documents, including a Noel Coward letter. And the funny thing is, other experts often approve his forgeries as the real deal. As we're having this conversation, somebody is forging a letter or a signature. Forgery has become big business globally, even at the highest level, even at organized crime, because why smuggle heroin when you can fake a Picasso? It's a fact that many in the industry have had to accept. Thomas Hoving at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, who said that 40% of everything in the Met is a forgery, he just wished he knew which 40% it was. Damn, 40% of the Met could be fake? Now, I wonder if they mentioned that at the famous Met Gala where all these folks spend a bunch of money. I imagine they don't. Now back to Lee Israel. She's pretty much nailed the process that Curtis has been talking about, and she's forging hundreds of letters. She hit her stride. Her money problems are behind her. And to hell with the people who didn't want to work with her before. Who needs them now? She got a little too secure and began making little mistakes here and there that, that called attention to her. This is where Lee starts to feel herself. She's getting arrogant and she starts to slip because she's making these Noel Coward letters a little too juicy. What really, really called attention to the forgeries was her lack of discretion in portraying Noel Coward's gay life. Back then, being gay was a jailable offense, so Noel would have been careful about what he wrote. Unfortunately, Lee's mistakes catch up to her and someone spots the error. One of the dealers caught on to Lee and demanded a sum of money that she was unable to pay. A dealer in New York confronts and blackmails her for $5,000. After forging over 400 letters, Lee is busted. The memorabilia collector's circle is small, and word slowly gets around that there are forgeries making their way onto the market. Lee's forgeries. She can't risk selling fakes anymore, and she can't risk selling them herself. She became a, uh, a persona non grata in those circles. Everyone knows her face, so the jig is pretty much up. Unless she can figure out a way to switch up her con. This is where she goes too far, where it ceases to be a creative job and becomes more common theft. That's coming up after the break. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Lee has been busted, and word has gotten around to her buyers. No one wants to buy from her anymore. So she recruits a new friend to sell letters for her, Jack Hawk. He's not fussy about the job or the provenance of the letters. 
He had previously spent time in jail for holding a cabbie at knife point in a dispute over the fare. So this dude is just happy for the cash. The only problem is buyers are on the lookout for fakes now. They're even getting letters authenticated before they buy. So she needs to sell the real deal. She then began to resort to stealing letters from the library. The New York Public Library, Columbia, Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. These archives are a big deal, and staff are understandably cautious about who they let in. They make you sign in before you can even look at anything. And they would bring it out, and you'd have gloves, and, you know, you had to be very careful with it. Then there's usually security around to keep an eye on you. And before you leave, they check the files to make sure you haven't taken anything, and they check your bags, too. So Lee visits these archives, signs in to look at certain documents, and studies the letters. She makes notes about the font, the signature, the paper, and writes down exactly what's written in the letter. Then she goes home to her trusty typewriter collection to create a forgery. Using her notes, she mocks up an exact copy and takes it back to the library. Then she signs into the archives again and does a little switcheroo. She would steal the original letter and then put its counterfeit in and return it to the library. So the library now has the fake, and Lee has the original, which her friend Jack can now fence for her. One day, Jack sells a letter to a dealer in New York named David. It's from Ernest Hemingway to American journalist Norman Cousins. David is, I'm sure, pleased with himself that he scored a letter from Hemingway. I imagine it's like the excitement you feel when you get anything new. You just want to know more about it. So he goes off and he's doing some research into the document when he stumbles across something a little bit strange. The letter is supposed to be in Columbia University's collection. He calls up the university and asks them, Hey, is there any way you can tell who had access to this letter? The man on the other end of the phone rustles around in some paperwork and finds a card with the name of the last person to check it out. It's signed by Lee Israel. And that's how the feds get involved. She's being actually followed now by the FBI. This is a felony crime, and uh, she is being investigated. The FBI starts to find Lee's forgeries and stolen letters in the hands of buyers. Her anxiety level begins to escalate. And then one day, according to Lee... When she's leaving a deli, she hears a man shout, Lee! She's stopped on the street and, uh, you know, meets the FBI who tell her that she's under investigation. The agent tells her that they know what she's been doing. And remember her accomplice, Jack Hawk? Well, he's singing like a bird. He's in custody and he never wants to hear from her again. Jack flipped, you know, uh, turned on Lee and, and, and I guess you could say betrayed Lee. And that's it. They don't arrest her, but it's very clear that the scam is dead. And Lee runs home and throws out all of her typewriters, you know, scattering them in garbage cans across the Upper West Side. Can you imagine this woman running around the city with her arms full of these heavy-ass typewriters just throwing them into dumpster after dumpster? In 1993, Lee's convicted of a Class D felony. She got off without having to go to the clink, which was her biggest fear. But check this out. She's barred from almost all libraries and archives. So her career as a biographer is pretty much over. Oh, 
What a punishment. I'm barred from all libraries. What? And the court also told her to attend an alcohol treatment program, but Lee never went. The FBI tracks down a significant number of letters forged by Lee and returns the stolen ones to the archives. But they think that many of her letters are still out there. And even after she's busted, dealers continue to sell her work as legit. A couple of the Noel Coward letters ended up in a biography of Coward as source material. Yeah, you heard that right. In 2007, two of her forgeries are published in a critically acclaimed book titled The Letters of Noel Coward. So that's after she's been busted for forgery. Everyone is pretty impressed by Lee. One FBI agent on the case calls Lee brilliant, and a buyer even says that the letters are terrific, even if they are fake. So Lee, she's pretty proud of her forgeries. She goes so far as to say that some of her work is even better than the original people's. In 2008, Lee's own memoir is published. Lee got the last laugh by writing, Can You Ever Forgive Me? In true Lee Israel style, she wasn't actually asking for forgiveness. She was just quoting that line from her forged Dorothy Parker letter. The book is breezy about the scam, and Lee doesn't shy away from the uglier parts of her life. She doesn't seem to be very sorry, though. She's so self-lacerating and doesn't try to make herself seem like an angel whatsoever. But her plight is very relatable. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, why I think the book was such a success is we all are hustlers in a way. We all wish that we had the courage to tell the jerks that they're jerks to their face. And to top it off, her book gets optioned to become a movie. That's when Jeffrey gets involved to work on the screenplay. He sends one of his drafts to Lee. She read that one and liked it, much to my delight and surprise. And it all comes full circle. It was my 40th birthday. <laughs> I, my friends took me on this bar crawl. It's 2011, and Jeffrey and his friends go into Julius's, a gay bar in New York City. People have been putting costume pieces on me, like bunny ears and, you know, various wigs and things. So here's Jeffrey sitting there in these bunny ears with his friends, having a great time. It's his 40th birthday, so you know it's going to get a little messy. I've had a few drinks at this point, and I look across the room and I said, Heidi, that's, that's Lee Israel. Now at this point, Jeff has been working on the screenplay of Lee's memoir for a few years. Imagine you're working night and day, writing a script about a person, getting into their mind, obsessing over every detail of their life. Then, drunk in a bar, you spot them sitting across from you. I mean, of course you're gonna say hi. He's gotta say hi, right? So I staggered over to where Lee was sitting in the front of the bar with a friend. Uh, and I said, Lee Israel? And she said, yes, <laughs> sizing me up. And I said, I I'm Jeff Whitty. I, I wrote the screenplay of your life. And she said, oh, I was looking at you over there with those bunny ears on and telling my friend I couldn't wait for you to leave. That's typical Lee, brutally honest. And <laughs> I, I turned bright red because I realized what a ridiculous figure I was cutting. And, uh, you know, I started laughing really hard, and then she laughed, and, you know, I, I passed the test. They get burgers a few weeks later, 
and all's good. And the movie ends up being pretty big. Melissa McCarthy signs on to play Lee, and she does a pretty good job. The film came out in 2018, in the fall. But Lee passed away in 2014, so she never got to see it. So she didn't get to take that that victory lap, which is uh, heartbreaking uh, for me, because I think she would have just loved it. Her story was worthy of a Hollywood movie. I mean, that's it's a great it's a great ending, you know. Here's a woman who was down on her luck, lonely with only her best friend, the sickly cat, and her home in complete disarray. There's a saying that desperate times call for desperate measures. If you're hungry and you need to survive, you'll steal an apple to eat. There are the good hustles and the bad hustles. Uh, they're the ones where one is deliberately hurting others to get themselves ahead. And then there are the ones, the hustles where you're just really, really hanging onto life by your fingernails and trying to get by. And Lee, Lee is, is very much the latter. If these desperate measures that you engage in save you and no one else is hurt, the benefit seems to be greater than the cost. Would you do it? What I kind of love about the whole story is that it was a victimless crime in the end because if you believed in it, if you believed that what you had was real, who was really harmed there? And then the sort of wonderful irony of the story, the end is that if you know that you're holding on to a Lee Israel forgery, it's probably even more valuable than the original article would have been. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next week on Cheat. Actually, I hated the police. You know, it was it was quite clear that I absolutely despised the police. I became really quite angry very quickly at just the level of abuse that he'd kind of committed to all of us. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Mira Kumar. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. 